Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following contains the names of those who have passed away. There are many towns scattered around Australia that have the same feature, a massive, sturdy, sprawling bridge that spans across a tiny or sometimes non-existent river, and to those who don't know, its appearance can be almost comical, particularly when such bridges are found over what looks like to be nothing more than flat scrubland. Such a bridge exists in Bega on the south coast. I've previously mentioned that I have deep family roots down there, And one story that's been passed down through the generations is about how two different branches of my family settled the region. My Irish side set up a hut next to the river, where the majority of the township was developing, a group of new arrivals that consisted mostly of Irish, English and Scots who were totally unused to the Australian environment and landscape. My German ancestor, however, who had travelled much of the world before settling in New South Wales, recognised that they were building their town on a floodplain and instead constructed his own home far away, down to the south and up on a hill. His warnings weren't taken seriously, and he and his family lived alone, until one faithful night when the Bega River suddenly broke its banks and swept the tiny hamlet away, resulting in people taking shelter with my German ancestor. As the waters receded, his house was now the only one left standing, and it became the centre of the new location for the town. That's why my family likes to say that we were the first Europeans to build a house in Bega. Well, my German side anyway. This is a story that is very common and often repeated across the nation, as Europeans were not at all prepared for Australian rivers that dried up and flooded with no apparent rhyme or reason. The story from Bega is a bit more humorous, at least from my family's perspective, but many others have had a much more tragic outcome such as it was in Gundagai in 1852. Gundagai is a small country town in southern New South Wales on the banks of the Murrumbidgee River, and even today it only has a population that barely reaches 2,000. If it had been located in any other place, it most certainly would have faded to obscurity by now. But by the virtue of not only being on the main road between Sydney and Melbourne, but also by being situated at a significant crossing point of the Murrumbidgee, Gundagai took root and established itself as an important rest stop for anyone going anywhere. This was the case long before European arrival. Gundagai is on the land of the Wiradjuri people and has been the site of human habitation for thousands of years. Ceremonial sites where initiation rituals are performed, known as Bora Rings or Burbung, are found around the region, indicating that not only was there a permanent presence in the area, but that many different groups would meet there for ceremony, trade and marriage. The land around the river is fertile and vibrant, and the Wiradjuri people lived off the healthy land for a millennium. 
They knew the land like a heartbeat, knew its seasons, moods and tempers. They knew how bad drought could get, how hot fires could burn, and how high the river could rise. In fact, there are many gum trees around the area that have axe markings on them that showed exactly where those waters could get to. The meaning of the word Gundagai is disputed. The most common explanation is that it comes from Gundabendogbingi, meaning to cut the back of the knee with an axe. This is said to be in relation to the shape of the river at its junction that's bent like a wounded knee, but it is also said to mean the place of the birds, and also, apparently, going upstream. However, when it comes to the meaning of Murrumbidgee, it's much more straightforward. This means big water, lots of water, plenty water. Partly due to it being a decently permanent water source, and partly due to its tendency to flood. In 1824, on their great expedition to find a route between Sydney and Port Phillip, now Melbourne, Hamilton Hume and William Hovell passed south of where Gundagai would later form, quickly identifying the area as an easy place to cross, something that they observed the Wiradjuri people doing in their small bark canoes. Charles Sturt also passed through the region at least three times between 1829 and 1838, as he initially thought that by following the Murrumbidgee inland, he would find the fabled inland sea of Australia. In the 11 years, he noticed a difference between the place, how in 1829 there had been an extremely sparse collection of white settlers who'd been outside the limitations of the 19 counties that originally made up the colony of New South Wales. That of course all changed over the next decade when three things about the region became apparent. Number one, it was the best place for crossing the river. Number two, it was surrounded by sweet country, good land for sheep and cattle farming. And number three, there was gold in the area. While never reaching the same frenzied heights as of goldfields in Victoria, all these combined factors led to Gundagai transforming from a scattered collection of prospectors into a real town, particularly in 1938 when a punt service at Stucklings Crossing was established, making it the only crossing place on the Murrumbidgee between Sydney and Melbourne. It was also in the same year that the location was inspected by colonial authorities, and the same year that the area was not quite in a drought, but still experiencing a significant lack of rainfall. Nevertheless, it was decided that the town should be founded on the wide plain that sat between the Murrumbidgee and its anna branch, Morley's Creek. The government started to sell the land off, and more Europeans began to move in and build their homes on what looked like an idyllic location. Deputy Surveyor General Samuel Perry, who approved of the plan, reported that, quote, a better site could not have been chosen for a town of the first class, end quote. The site that he had chosen was a floodplain. By 1840, Gundagai was officially gazetted, and as with some old country towns that sprung up seemingly overnight, some funds seemed to have been had with the street names, as a number of them were poets such as Homer, Ovid, Sheraton, and Byron. Hotels, pubs, churches and a school decorated the plain and within a few years the tiny hamlet had a population of more than 150. It was a regional outpost, but an important one, and even those in Melbourne and Sydney who'd never been there soon knew the name of Gundagai. And the Wiradjuri people pointed at the scarred trees and warned of big fella floods and were ignored. It's said around this time that there were at least 35 different groups of Wiradjuri people in the area, although a complete census and actual numbers was never taken. On October the 24th, 1844, the township received its last warning, this time from Mother Nature herself. The river broke its banks and flooded the fledgling town badly enough to cause serious structural damage 
and claimed two lives. People sought higher ground first in their attics, then on the top of their roofs, before punts that were usually used for crossing the river could be repurposed as rescue vehicles. Two of those who needed help was grazier John Hargraves and his wife, Susanna, who, instead of being saved by their fellow Europeans, were instead rescued by a Wiradjuri man called Kunog Denamandina, or better known as Yari, who was said to have been about 30 years old at the time and came from south of Gundagai, from a town known as Brungle. Hargraves was deeply grateful for this act. It's said that a friendship formed between the two men and that the whole family held Yari in high regard. From then until his death, he lived on the Hargraves' property, although it should be noted that while reports state this, it was most likely the other way around, with the Hargraves having moved on and taken Yari's land. Yari wasn't the only Wiradjuri person to assist in the rescues, as the Crown Commissioner for the Murrumbidgee District, Henry Bingham, stated in this letter which was publicised in the Colonial Observer. Quote, Sir, I do myself the honour to inform you, for the information of His Excellency, the Governor, that having been called to Gundagai on the 24th of last month to hold an inquiry, with much regret, on the body of an Aboriginal native named Gotharig, drowned in a creek near the Murrumbidgee River, that I would not be doing justice to the Aboriginal natives of this part if I did not state that due to the severe and continued floods caused by the overflowing of the waters of the Murrumbidgee and the, and the Tumut Rivers, that in the hour of peril, alarm and danger, the blacks were most active in cutting canoes and rescuing men, women and children from their huts and saved many of them from a watery grave. In fact, their conduct was noble and praiseworthy. And should His Excellency the Governor be pleased to sanction my small requisition in their favour, I consider it would do much good and that they merit some reward in order to stimulate them to such actions and conduct as we know not now when they may be called upon again under similar trying moments." End quote. It's clear from the letter that Bingham already saw that there might be some very real danger in the future for Gundagai and seemed to want to almost keep the Wiradjuri people on some sort of retainer for their services if they were ever needed again. Bingham's concern about the seemingly perfect location of this tiny town led to him formally writing to the Governor of New South Wales, Sir George Gipps, stating that the allotments that were sold to the settlers were unsafe and that those allotments, and therefore the whole town, should be moved to higher ground. The government outright refused this proposition. They believed that the flood of 1844 was the worst example of such an event, and that those in its wake were simply complaining and trying to rot the government for better land elsewhere. After all, the deputy surveyor from England had declared only six years earlier that the site was perfect, and while the governor at least acquiesced to sending someone to take another look, the letter ends with, quote, His Excellency further directs me to inform you that he cannot, however, sanction the proposed exchange of flooded allotments, as he considers that what a man buys, he buys for better or worse, end quote. The townspeople were told that they were free to move, but the government wouldn't refund them for the dangerous allotment that they were sold by the river and that they would have to buy a second allotment further away. As most could not afford to do this, the town stayed put. In the government's mind, moving them just simply wasn't financially viable. I do wonder if Bigham ever went out to look at the scarred trees and wonder if the river could really reach such heights. If he did, he knew that such evidence of dangerous floods would have been rejected by those in Sydney who wouldn't have been interested in the testimony of those who had lived on the land for thousands of years.
It was June the 24th, 1852, and Gundagai was now a town of 250 people. The weather had been miserable for three weeks now. Steady, heavy rain turning the ground into mush and leaving the Murrumbidgee swollen and the people of Gundagai wary. Those who were more astute and took notice of their surroundings realised that a week earlier, the Wiradjuri people had moved from their camp to a higher ground, but the Europeans, locked to their homes on a dangerous land, stayed with their properties. Those who'd witnessed the floods in 1844 surely felt that history was about to repeat itself. They were wrong. History was about to be made. The day before, a white man, John Sears, took it upon himself to go around to most of the residents, warning them that they needed to get to higher ground if only for one night. Little is known about Joe, except for the fact that he seemed to be someone who listened and acted, and probably knew as a white man that his warnings might be taken more seriously, as he also brought news of flooding in Yass and Tumut. However, very few people heeded this warning. Those that did moved to a pub beyond Morley's Creek, most appropriately named the Noah's Ark Hotel. Some things you just cannot make up. One of those people to evacuate was a Mrs. Foster, who was initially very reluctant to evacuate as nobody else seemed to be doing so. But as she'd just had her first child two weeks ago, her husband insisted that they both seek higher ground. He himself decided to remain and to look after the Lindley family who owned and operated the Rose Inn. His decision came as Mr. Lindley was out of town on business and had left his wife and four children behind. Conditions rapidly deteriorated. Early Thursday morning, a swollen Morley's Creek broke its banks and looped back around to join up with the Murrumbidgee, effectively turning Gundagai into a small island that was sinking fast. It was now officially too late to leave. By afternoon, at least two feet of water now swamped the town, with those remaining moving the women and children upstairs into the lofts, or, if they could, just seating themselves on tables and beds to keep out of the water, hoping that this was the worst of it. One family that was trapped was the Turnbulls, who'd opted to stay as their home, which also doubled as a store, was one of the few sturdy brick residences in the town that they thought could withstand the deluge. This decision also came about because Mrs Turnbull had only eight days previously given birth to her fourth son and was still bedridden. The Turnbulls were a family of six, the four boys all under the age of five. There was also a friend of the family's, a Mrs Helen Sawyer, as well as a young man who'd been passing through and had sought shelter. They, like most of the town, went to bed that night praying that the worst had already come and gone. They were awoken about nine in the evening by the roaring sound of water, the crashing and tearing of huge logs smashing into buildings, and the screams of those trapped in the middle of it all. Earlier that night, the Chimut River had joined the Murrumbidgee further upstream, creating a virtual inland sea. Many who'd gone to sleep with the water just under their beds were suddenly roused by the torrential rush of water that now broke windows and battered down doors, escaping as quick as they could to the higher levels of their homes if they hadn't already. Those that didn't have the luxury of a higher level instead moved onto their roofs, clad only in their nightclothes in the freezing, soaking winter's darkness. The Turnbull family was surprised by the arrival of another man, an artist travelling from Sydney, who waded through armpit-deep water to their store, abandoning the Rose Inn Hotel as he believed that the wooden structure wasn't sturdy enough to endure the floods, leaving behind 27 others, including Mr Foster and the Lindley family. Mrs Turnbull recounted the experience two years later. Quote, the gushing of the waters and the howling of the winds were so terrific, and there were the most fearful noises in the house below, 
Casks and cases, furniture all knocking against one another, together with the raging elements outside. The terror I felt at that moment is beyond description. A lull would come for a few moments, and we could hear the most heart-rendering shrieks of those who were on the tops of their houses, crying for help, but none could be given. The water was still rising, making an awful noise. Every now and then an immense tree would come and thump up against the side of our house, which would shake it to the very foundation. End quote. There came one particularly loud crash as a tree smashed through the shop window and straight out the back door. This proved to be a mercy, as it now allowed the rushing water to sweep through the building rather than to be forced around it, and their refuge became a little safer. However, as the waters were now pushing into the loft, Mr Turnbull and his two mound companions grabbed a pair of tomahawks and broke through the ceiling, the nine members of the household crawling out into the darkness and onto the roof as the second level was swamped. Mrs Turnbull again recalled, quote, We looked around us, an ocean presenting itself on all sides. It was drizzling rain all night, and a piercing wind was blowing. As the moon would peep through a cloud, we could see our neighbours around us in the same condition as ourselves, men, women, and children, who never ceased screaming the whole night. Some we saw clinging to chimneys. End quote. The correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald, who himself was caught in the floods, remembered it as such. Quote, As the night drew in, the unavailing cries for assistance all around became fearfully harassing. Crash after crash announced the fall of a house, and the screams that followed the engulfing of those who clung to it. Numbers who were carried away by the stream saved themselves by clinging to trees. I myself was on a tree from 11 o'clock on Friday night until 3 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. Many were so placed for two nights, and though some were saved, several perished from exhaustion. One melancholy instance is the fate of Miss Hemphill, who on Saturday night was alive in a tree, which on Sunday morning she was found dead. End quote. As the sun rose on Friday, it showed a dreadful scene. Gundagai was virtually gone, and those that remained were dotted about on roofs or in trees, screaming for assistance and struggling to keep themselves warm. The first rescue attempt came in the form of four men in the punt, the type that was usually used for crossing the river in calmer conditions, broad and flat. As soon as it was spotted, cries for help came from all sides, as men struggled to navigate the raging waters. They passed by the Turnbulls and called out to them that they would return, but that another family, the Thatchers, were in much greater danger at the moment. There was Mr and Mrs Thatcher and their five children, a girl and four boys all under the age of 16, along with Mr. Thatcher's mother, as well as their daughter-in-law. The punt took the children, but no more, the four men struggling to control the raft. Again, they promised that they would return, stranded and stricken folk watching them closely from all sides. Mrs. Turnbull described the rest. Quote, We anxiously watched their progress, as also did their anxious parents, who, like us, were still on their housetop. The stream appeared to get more furious, the boat dashing about from side to side, the poor men striving with all energy to clear off the trees and logs, but to no purpose. Anxiously did we watch them. They had just got in the middle of the river. The boat struck with fearful force on an immense tree. We saw the boat spring out of the water and fall again head first and sink in an instant. Only one man out of the whole number saved himself. After much difficulty, he gained a tree into which he got and remained there for nearly three days. The burst of grief from the now bereaved parents may be better imagined than expressed, 
It was heart-rendering in the extreme. Such a scene I had never before witnessed, and I trust I may never again while I live. The agonized shrieks of the unhappy mother at that moment when she saw her children sink to rise no more was indeed very dreadful. All the poor souls who witnessed this disaster became frantic. Those shrieks are now in my ears. Never shall I forget the horrors of that dread time. The loss of those unfortunate children in the boat cast a gloom over all of us, and the numbers who had hoped of being saved by that boat now gave themselves into despair. End quote. Horrified by what they'd witnessed, yet still determined, a second rescue boat was launched, this time with only two pullers. And tragically, before they could even reach any of the stranded, this second boat was caught in a whirlpool and smashed to pieces, killing those who'd only wanted to help. The Thatcher's home soon collapsed after, and all but Mr. Thatcher perished. No escape, little hope of rescue. And now there was another danger to contend with, the livestock. Cows, sheep, horses, all were swept away with the rest of the debris, bellowing and shrieking just as terrified as the humans around them and fighting just as hard for survival. In many instances, a cow or horse would manage to come across a building and attempt to clamber onto the rooftop alongside people who also sought refuge there, the weight of the animal causing the frail buildings to groan under the stress. The people would then have to fight off these wild and frantic beasts as best as they could as they struggled for their own lives. One terrible story is that of Mrs. Doyle. Her husband and five children were stranded on their roof like many others. She had her two-year-old strapped to her back and was cradling her infant, who at the time was only three weeks old. Eventually the house gave way, sweeping her husband and three children away. She started to swim as hard as she could, one hand still holding the baby, until she managed to catch herself on a tree. She checked her children. Shockingly enough, her infant that she held close to her chest was alive but the child on her back was dead. With the strength of the current all around her, she had to make the painfully practical decision to let go of the body of her son. But the ordeal for her wasn't over. Clinging to a tree like many others, she suddenly had to contend with a frantic horse that started to paw and kick at her back. One hand was wrapped around a tree branch, the other holding a baby, and she could do little to fight it off, its hooves leaving her back and shoulders a horrible, torn, blackened mess. Eventually, she managed to kick it away and stayed a night in the tree. When sun rose the next morning, she again attempted, this time successfully, in swimming to shore, frozen and broken, but having at least saved her baby, the two of them alive as she was dragged out by a young man called Jim Gormley, he himself now the only remaining member of his family. Neither Mrs. Dawes' husband nor her other children survived. Mrs. Doyle suffered a severe mental breakdown after that and was said to have been insensible for many months. While she eventually did recover, she admitted later in life that she had no recollection of that night or even the weeks that followed. Perhaps that was for the best. After the loss of two rescue boats, there seemed to be little chance of anyone again attempting to navigate the torrent. Then came a Wiradjuri man known as Tommy Davis. Very little is known about Tommy Davis. One article from 1912 described him as, quote, one of the migratory order, well known in both Kuma and Yass, end quote. 
But what is known about him is that, in his small bark canoe, he came out into the flooded town to help. You'd think that the folks would have jumped at the opportunity, but compared to the punt and the rowboat that had previously made the effort and were destroyed, the traditional canoe must have looked like little more than a cardboard raft. When Tommy pulled up to the Rose Inn, where the Lindley family were holding onto the roof along with Mr Foster and 21 others, his offer for help was shockingly refused. In retrospect, this seems insane, but at the time, Mrs Lindley had just watched another woman's children die after attempting a crossing in what she would have perceived to be a much sturdier raft. Mr Foster tried to convince her, but she remained adamant, believing that the worst of the flood had passed and that it would be safer to wait it out. Mr Foster, on the other hand, took up Tommy's offer and slid from the roof and into the light craft that could only take one passenger at a time. Tommy got both of them to shore, then turned back out and went to rescue Mr Weatherby, who was stuck in a tree. Some accounts say that he may have rescued as many as 14 people, but unfortunately there is very little evidence of anything more about Tommy. Mr Foster was one of the very few that was able to reunite with his wife and his child. Night fell. When it rose on Saturday morning, the Rose Inn and everyone who'd taken shelter on its roof was gone. It would be days before Mr Lindley discovered that his entire family was dead. It was said that when he was in Yass, he'd told others that he'd been sure that his family was safe and on high enough ground in a strong enough home to weather the storm. He'd firmly believed that he would be returning to them. One of the great horrors that the victims of the floods had to endure was not only that their own lives were in danger, but that they had to bear witness to every collapsed house, every failed rescue, every scream and plea and prayer. And in a town that numbered only 250, all these people either knew each other intimately or at least by sight. Over the next three days they called to each other, some pleading for safety, some trying to give encouragement. Sometimes just as they felt the roof give way underneath them, or the tree that they were clinging to finally being pulled from its roots, these doomed townsfolk would give one last cry. It's going. It's going. God bless you all. Before they themselves were swept away and lost. The Turnbull family emerged from their second night on the roof, soaked, freezing, bleeding from numbed hands and feet, starving and soiled, but still alive on the top of their home. The day stretched on and just as it seemed that they might have to endure a third night, one of the children pointed and cried out, Mama, it's Jackie. Jackie Jackie, who also went by the name of John Mosley, was only a teen when the Great Flood hit, possibly only 16. He was also a Wiradjuri man, but when he was a child his mother had been speared and he was raised by a white man. He also had a personal connection with the Turnbulls. Before her marriage, Mrs. Turnbull had been Miss Mary Andrew from nearby Kimo Station, where Jackie Jackie lived and worked. Many newspapers of the day referred to Jackie as Andrew's blackfellow, to say that he was employed there. Interestingly, the Andrews were renowned in the region for being, quote, uncommonly kind towards the blacks, end quote, and Mrs. Turnbull, nee Andrews, was apparently universally liked by Gundagai's Wiradjuri community. It was evidently this affection Jackie had for Missy Andrews that initially sent him out towards the ruins of Gundagai as soon as the waters around Kimo receded enough to allow him. Jackie wasn't the only one on the shoreline, but he was the only one now brave enough to make a third rescue attempt. 
Both the crowd on the shore and those trapped by the raging waters watched, terrified, as Jackie tried to launch his small rowboat. The water was still so dangerous that even the shallow areas by the bank proved difficult, waters spilling over and threatening to sink the raft before it even departed. On the second attempt it seemed that the boat was damaged and Jackie and some other folks spent precious daylight fixing it. On the third attempt he managed to launch and rowed with excessive difficulty to the stranded family, one teen alone again attempting something that had killed six other rescuers before him. When he finally got to the shell of the store, he was said to have remarked, quote, Good many times me try to come to you, but bow too much water, gammon bow this flood, but never you mind all right now, me take Mrs. Along Hill. Even though taking the boat might have meant death, staying another night would guarantee it, so Mrs. Turnbull and her children awkwardly hopped aboard, leaving Mr. Turnbull, Miss Sawyer and the young man behind. Earlier that day, the second man, the artist, who abandoned the Rose Inn for the Turnbull residence, had lost his mind completely and jumped into the stream. Shockingly enough, he would be found alive two days later, stuck in a tree. Jackie battled against the current that continually turned their boat around, though, unlike previous attempts, he seemed to be going more with the flow than to fight against it, and after some incredibly tense minutes, finally brought the family to shore and into the arms of the more fortunate whites. Then, Jackie turned back and again launched into the flood and collected the rest of those still on the top of Turnbull's shop. As the exhausted family rejoiced on the shoreline, they watched the building that they'd sheltered on for three days finally collapse. Night was again falling fast. Jackie rode out again and again, bringing those to shore who'd been stuck in trees and on the top of roofs, rescuing a total of 20 people in his little rowboat. What makes this feat even more remarkable is that Jackie was reportedly terrified, stealing himself and shaking his head before each mission, moved and encouraged by the pleas of Mrs Turnbull. But as darkness fell and the danger became too much, Jackie refused to go back out, even as those left behind screamed for assistance. As no other white man on the shore would take control of the raft themselves, Jackie received no criticism for this decision. But it was still painful to witness. Darkness fell, and now there were some about to spend their third night in the flood. One man, a very rich businessman from Yass, began to bargain. He would pay Jackie or any other man 50 pounds to save his life. A hundred, a hundred and fifty, two hundred pounds. That's about $28,000 by today's standard. But the danger was too great, and too many people had already been lost in rescue attempts, and no one wanted to try that in the dark. There was no amount of money in the world that could tempt people back out into those blackened waters. When dawn broke on Sunday, the very rich businessman from Yass was gone. Over the three days of intense flooding, it very quickly became apparent to many who had been pulled from the freezing waters that they all had the same man to thank. Yari, the hero from the 1844 floods, had again set his small bark canoe against the entire might of Mother Nature to drag out the white settlers who, against all warnings, had continued to live in such a dangerous location. Now in his early 40s, Yari, who could have, and in all reality, would have been completely in his rights to stay high and dry on the Hargraves property, which was one of the few who had actually moved after 44, instead decided to save those who'd taken his land. 
His small bark canoe had a great advantage in that it moved with the water rather than against it, so instead of being tossed and swamped, it ran along the stream like a leaf. But the great disadvantage was that it could only take, at a stretch, two light passengers at a time. But this didn't deter Yari. He didn't just stay by the ruined town, but travelled up and down the river, his canoe light enough to carry. He rescued Mrs. Reardon and her six children, making multiple attempts to get them. Then it was Dr. Davison, his wife and daughter. Then he saved poor Dr. Spencer, who not only was stuck in a tree for two days, but who was unfortunately completely naked. Over and over, one or two at a time, Yari spent the next three days going in and out of the frigid, filthy, debris-filled water to rescue those stuck on roofs and in trees. He navigated whirlpools, avoided distressed animals, skirted around ruined buildings, and kept his panicked passengers from overturning the raft themselves. In one especially stunning case, Yari managed to rescue five men who were floating along a massive bale of hay. So not only did he rescue people who needed it, he rescued people who were moving with the stream at the same time. Those who were saved recalled Yari coming out to them on his knees in his canoe, no oars, just using his hands to guide himself in the water, his hands and forearms said to be completely numb. For three days he did this, at one point working for 50 hours straight. It's believed that Yari in his little bark canoe saved a total of 49 people. This was a fifth of Gundagai's population and I believe remains, to this day, the largest rescue conducted by a single person in Australian history. Yari and Jackie became heroes and were recognised as such for the rest of their lives, but Tommy Davis fades into obscurity after this event. And now I need to make mention of an Indigenous man only known as Jimmy who was said to have died a few days after the flooding from a sickness he contracted while rescuing stranded whites. And sadly, that's pretty much anyone knows about Jimmy. Officially, the number of people who died from the flood of 1852 stands at 89, but the truth is we will never know exactly how many people died over that weekend. Gundagai was a transient town with a small collection of tents regularly pitched next to the river. Drovers and stockmen, Gold miners from China and America either going to Victoria or returning, or probably only intending to stay a night, and no one ever officially recorded on any registry. Some say the number of dead is closer to 100, or possibly even higher. But regardless, this still remains the deadliest flood Australia's ever seen. By Monday, the floodwaters finally began to recede, and the morbid task of surveying the damage and counting the dead began. An Anglican priest, along with the journalist, who he himself had to be rescued by Yari from his tree, did their best to collect the names. Reading the list of dead is always sad, but there was a particular pain when the bodies of travellers were discovered and simply labelled as unknown. Unknown man, unknown servant, unknown traveller. It's generally thought that, aside from the death of Jimmy, there was no further loss of Aboriginal life during the flood because they'd all moved away. Or, if there was, it was not recorded. Bodies were found for weeks, many unfortunately surviving the flood by sheltering in trees only to die from exposure. Their bodies found days later, caught in forked branches like the prey of a butcher bird. And it wasn't just humans. There was one case which demonstrated how high the water got and how fierce it had been. The bloated body of a horse caught by its neck in the fork of a tree was suspended 50 feet above the ground 
and the carcass remained there for the better part of a year. Gundagai was gone. Of the 70 or so buildings that had made up the town, only three remained standing. Personal belongings were swept away, furniture, clothes, jewellery, heirlooms, the lot. The journalist again noted that, quote, The scenes on the high part, where the remains of the inhabitants congregated, is truly distressing. At every step you see someone lamenting the dead. Here and there the sorrowing remains of what three days before was a large and thriving family. End quote. People like Jim Gromley, Mr Thatcher and Mr Lindley, who had in every sense lost everything. In events such as these, sometimes the greatest tragedy can be recognising retroactively the warning signs which might have prevented such loss of life. But for Gundagai, those warning signs had been painfully obvious. Even the people of the day recognised their mistakes, with the Gundagai Independent noting on the 60th anniversary in 1912 that, quote, Although the blacks gave warning of its approach, the residents of the town paid no attention thereto, nor to the significant fact that the Aboriginals moved their camp to higher ground. End quote. Anger quickly replaced grief as news spread across the colony. As people from Sydney and Melbourne rallied around those now destitute in Gundagai, sending food, blankets and clothes, there was harsh criticism directed at the government's refusal to move the town earlier, when they were clearly in a dangerous location. Just four months after the flooding of Gundagai, it was officially relocated north of Morley's Creek, though this new site hasn't prevented further flooding. Gundagai continues to be at the mercy of the Murrumbidgee, with damaging waters rising again in 1891, 1902, 2012. Data now shows that on average, waters rising enough to affect the town occur every 11 years or so. It has now been 168 years since the Great Flood of 1852, and most of Australia has never even heard of it. But with the constant presence and threat of the Bidgee at their doorstep, and the fact that there are still many in the district directly descended from those who survived that flood, the memory of that weekend is still alive and has been kept alive through constant reflection. Jackie and Yari, for the most part, were treated like heroes for the rest of their lives. Special breastplates were made for them and Tommy Davis too, which identified them as the saviours of Gundagai and were therefore entitled to any and all requests within reason. On these plates there was an engraving showing a black man in a canoe going out to help a white man stuck in a tree. It said that Tommy always wore this while he was travelling and that it afforded him many hospitalities. And here all knowledge of what happened to Tommy Davis ends. Decades later, as Jackie and Yari grew older, their acts were not forgotten, and the townsfolk petitioned the government to provide them with a pension, which eventually went through, though only a few years before Yari's death. In 1870, when Yari would have been about 60, a rather sad note about him appears in the newspaper. Quote, a passerby on Monday complains that he saw some individuals whom he supposes would expect to be considered men maltreating and teasing an unfortunate blackfellow whom he subsequently ascertained was old Yari. He reminds us that this blackfellow was instrumental in saving the lives of many white people in the disastrous floods of 1852 and that the only thanks he has received has been to be kicked about by a lot of white rascals whom, in their behaviour, supply in their own persons a strong argument in favour of the theory of the descent of men from monkeys. 
end quote which is par for the course in pretty much every place in Australia. Though it is interesting that such acts were met with anger from the white community, a rare occurrence. However, wherever there is white interest, there is black deaths, and the Gundagai region was no different. In 1830, in 20 kilometres north, there was a massacre at Kulak, and later smallpox spread across the area brought by the settlers. It seems that the people of Gundagai, humbled by their horrible experience, were now more respectful of the Aboriginal people than most of their kind. At the age of 70, Yari fell from his horse and never fully recovered. A few months after his fall, he developed an aneurysm in his knee, and even though it was recommended that he travel to Sydney for an operation, all expenses paid for by the town, he refused, knowing that his end was near and wanting to die on his own land. He passed away on the 24th of July, 1880, and was buried in the Roman Catholic section of the Gundagai Cemetery. Jackie relocated to the Brunkle Mission south of town, where he lived out the rest of his life, passing away on the 15th of September 1908 at the age of 72. In his obituary, it was noted that, quote, Deceased was a portly old chap, and if he had been white and dressed in a bell topper and a pair of boots, he would have passed for a member of the upper house, end quote. Strangely enough, Jackie was interned in the Jewish section of the cemetery, but seeing as how there was no objections from either Wiradjuri or Jewish voices, he remains there still. But back to Yari and a somewhat disturbing postscript. It was probably likely that Yari was a murderer. Hmm. He was accused of two deaths, the first, funnily enough, being that of John Baxter, the Irish explorer who accompanied Edward John Eyre on his expedition across the country and was murdered in Western Australia. Now, this would have placed Yari extremely far away from his home, and while not totally outside the realm of possibility, seeing as how Baxter and Eyre passed through Gundagai and might have taken Yari as a quote-unquote helper, this has never been definitively proven. However, the other accusation of murder comes from his own people in Brungle, who accused him of killing Sally MacLeod, a woman who was described as part Aboriginal. There was even a warrant out for his arrest, but as this was only a few months before his bravery at the floods, it seems to have either been forgotten or purposely swept aside. And suspicious deaths followed him still, with reports that his wife, simply known as Black Sally, had died either from getting lost in the bush or from being murdered by an unknown white man. While these deaths have been linked to him, nothing has been proven. memory of the Great Flood of 1852 is now almost non-existent in the nation's consciousness. The people of Gundagai, however, have never let it fade, taking particular care of its recollection in recent years. There have been poems and songs, as well as much more physical evidence. All around the town there are signs of the flood. There's Yarry's Bridge, a property is called Yarry, and a mural depicting the floods. In 1960, one of the descendants of those rescued designed and made a sculpture of Yarry in his canoe. In 1980, on the 100th anniversary of his death, Yari's grave was finally marked, a stately headstone declaring him the hero of Gundagai. In 2017, after years of fundraising, a statue of Yari and Jackie, along with a bark canoe, titled The Great Rescue of 1852, was unveiled to great ceremony and celebration, attended by black and white alike. Then, finally, after decades of campaigning and one rejection, both Yari and Jackie received posthumous bravery awards in 2018, 
presented by the Governor-General to Auntie Sonia Piper from the Brungle community on behalf of Jackie and Rosalind Boyles, a descendant of Yari. A common thread in our history that extends to this day is the fact that Europeans were vastly unprepared for the Australian landscape and only made things worse for themselves by not listening to the Indigenous people who had cared for the land for millennia, often to disastrous effects. Many around Gundagai are keenly aware of this, with Ian Horsley, whose ancestor was plucked from a tree by Yarry, putting it very bluntly, quote, They would have been quite entitled to sit on the bank and say, I told you so. So it makes it particularly poignant that they didn't do that, that they instead started executing these amazing rescues. End quote. All the whites in Gundagai know full well that, given the fact that their ancestors stole the land that they're now living on and most likely brutally mistreated the Wiradjuri, none of those men with their bark canoes had any obligation to save any of those invaders. And, let's be honest, what would the likelihood have been that any white man of that time would have made a similar effort to save black families? The memorial next to Yari and Jackie's statue sums it up very well with the words pride, gratitude, and reconciliation. I was lucky enough to pass through Gundagai last year, making a point to stop and see the statues, as well as to pay my respects at the cemetery, not only to Yari, but also to Captain Moonlight, who's buried a little bit further away. Yari's large black headstone is very easy to pick out, and at its base, to this day, flowers can still be found. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.